Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Pure Hoops Podcast back for another show. Eric Newman in a beautiful spring-like New York City. BJ Armstrong in L.A. BJ, five incredible weeks, ten episodes, the last dance. How did it end for you, my friend? How did it all go? Well, it was great, and um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was uh, well done, well executed, and uh, the most in- impressive thing is it gave the fans and you know all the people who follow the Bulls and follow Michael's career an opportunity to really see behind the scenes of his mindset and how he prepared and the things that he did to get to the level and perform the way he performed. So I thought it was fabulous, enjoyed it. And, um, you know, it was, uh, I never thought I would say this, you know, you know, it was 10 hours, but you know what? I could, I could, I could use more if possible. Oh, easily, (laughs) easily, um, could watch more. And I'm sure there were things left on the cutting room floor that would have been great to see. And, their job getting that done, as we'll learn from today's guest, um, challenging and even more impressive with the the timeline sped up. BJ, you know this because I say it often. I'm beyond blessed at who I've been able to meet through the game, through storytelling, and today's guest is a perfect example. He is uh, an executive producer at Mandalay Sports, and he is one of the producers on The Last Dance, which, of course, you are one of the impressive stars of. want to welcome the one and only John Weinbeck to the Peter Hoops podcast. John, thanks for jumping on with us, buddy. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So before we get into the, the thick of it with The Last Dance, we've got Chicago Bull three-time champion B.J. Armstrong. We've got, of course, diehard Boston Celtics fan, yours truly, diehard Lakers fan out there on the West Coast. Can you first, with B.J., take us down a little memory lane of Laker fan, Bulls opponent, 1991 NBA Finals? What comes back to mind? Well, so you forget that, like, the Blazers were actually the best team in the West that year. Um, and I have a diehard Blazer fan, like, best friend, who's, like, still pissed that, that, that we beat them in, in the Western Conference Finals. And it was, like, sort of this magical run where they got hot and they played really well against the Blazers. And, you know, I was – I hated the Pistons. I think I hated the Pistons more than any team ever. And that's saying a lot because I really detested um, the Celtics. And so I didn't really have any big feelings about the Bulls going into that finals. And remember, Lakers won game one, and it was like, man, we might actually win this. And and then it came back to L.A., and and I can't remember, B.J., you, you would be able to tell me, I think By- – didn't Byron Scott get hurt in that series, and that's why the Lakers had to start, like, Tony Smith? Um, I, I, think I-, later in, I think later in the series, I think right around game – 
three or something, game three or game four, somewhere around there. I can't remember. I can't recall. But BJ, you see what he's doing though, BJ? He's already setting up an injury. We got to go with it and let let John tell the story. I went to game four. So we're down 2-1. And and I went to game four. It was part of the 17,505 at the Great Western Forum. Um, And um, I've been, I was, you know, we had like quarter season tickets, maybe even less, like six to eight games a year. And, um, but we kind of had bizarre great luck where we got our turn in the, in the rotation was like during these incredible games in the finals. And so I had, my brother and I ran onto the floor in 87 to beat E. Newman Celtics. Um, but then aside from that, which is my greatest sports fan memory, I've been to some of the worst Laker losses. So I was in 85 when DJ hit a last-second shot to beat the Lakers. I was at the game in 86 when Ralph Sampson hit that crazy volleyball shot to, nice. to beat the Lakers. In 88, I went and they lost game uh, – the Lakers had lost game two to the Pistons. Detroit. I went to that game. Yeah. So I'm going in a 91, and I'm like, okay, the, the odds are we're going to be okay. And then game four – the the it is my opinion that Michael Jordan played illegal defense like half <laughs> half of the time of the game and like they had Scotty just bird dogging Magic and basically you know Michael would just play that crazy center field role and and what ended up happening is that you guys were like triple team Magic and Vlade had a good game but like nobody else could score and I I don't even remember the final but it was a brutally ugly game for the Lakers in terms of the, the defense. And I just, from that moment, I kind of hated the Bulls. <laughs> and you obviously had appreciation for for Michael. And I, I the one thing, I, the hatred was never as deep because the Bulls didn't really have any whiners. There was no Danny Ainge. There was no Lane Beer. There wasn't anybody. Like, I had a little bit. I didn't love Cliff, Cliff Levingston, you know, his energy. But, but there wasn't really anybody hateable. Um, on the Bulls, and so it was just like Jordan. He's getting all the calls, and not, you know, in those days, they used to half the game was like, "Are they going to call illegal defense or not?" You know, and and so I just remember that, and just feeling so deflated, and really feeling like, you know, it, it, and 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 Jason did a, a, just a great job of this in, in the series, and the, and the guys and the team is is using that footage of where Magic sort of embraces, you know, Jordan after game five. Like, I, re- I remember feeling this after game four. Like, this is it. Like, the Lakers era is kind of done. And, like, it, 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 they had a nice sort of this last run, in, and they had a new coach in Dunleavy and Sam Perkins and all this stuff. But it was like, Jordan's just better. And, <laughs> and that was like a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> um, but, but I remember that very vividly, watching that game. BJ, from from your side of it back then, and uh, you know, John, we were joking pre-show just about like recalling stuff from you know thirty years ago, and um, you know how much how much can you actually remember? But in situations like that, it's I think it's vibe and tone of the the, the situation and the atmosphere and what's at stake. But you know, BJ and I, we've talked a lot of '90s, you know, well before. Um, you know, the recent release of Last Dance, but BJ, do you remember a certain feeling of what the forum felt like back then and knowing you guys were on that mission and knowing, you know, the passing of the torch with Magic and beating the Pistons, that was that was all happening in that moment of time? Well, you know, um, 
you know, coming into that series, um, you know, they had, you know, clearly a remarkable player in, in, in Magic Johnson. And um, I just remember coming into that game one, you know, Magic had a sense of the game and he was, he was Magic. That's all you can say. I mean, there were, that was our first time there. We were playing at home. And back then the series, the way the series broke down was it was two, three, two. And, um, you know, we, we wanted, we really wanted to hold serve there at home. And, uh, you know, magic came in, it was incredible. He managed the game and, um, but we feel good about it. We, I mean, we really didn't play well, but you have to give the Lakers credit. And, um, so we, we had like this, even though we had lost game one, I think everyone acknowledged that we were, you know, it's a different game. You know, the finals is a different game. There's a different energy. There's a different, you know, the pregame, the way the game plays, the introductions are different. The television timeouts are a little longer. So mm-hmm. it just kind of took us a game to kind of get settled in. And Magic came in and did what he had to do. I mean, he was, he was... He was, he was doing his thing. And, uh, but what we, what we found out was, you know, we, it, it kind of like, even though the score indicated that we lost, we felt that we accomplished some things and we figured out some things. And the thing that we figured out was magic. I mean, magic had a great game and um, the matchup was supposed to be Michael versus magic. Mm-hmm. That was the matchup. And what, what happened as we found out uh, Michael got in foul trouble and we quickly learned that we could do some different things with Scotty guarding him because now we could like, we could focus in on him. And it just kind of like, even though we lost, we knew, and we didn't show our hand in game two. Right. So it was like, we knew it, but the Lakers didn't know what we were going to do and they couldn't, make adjustments to after we after we had already showed what we're going to do which you know we had to play the next game and from there we uh we just figured out something scotty on michael was our matchup scotty on magic matt scotty on magic was the matchup and then they weren't able to adjust you know because magic was he's such you know he's you know, he's six eight. He can look over the defense. He has such an advantage. Well, all of a sudden, we put another guy who was six eight, six nine, right on him, and then we could kind of roam. We all could roam. And uh, one of the big things that we tried to do, which seems very simple, but it was great for our defense. If you play, you know, when you watch Magic and all the guys, you know, he throw these passes right by your ear, right? He's he's zipping passes around. Our whole job, or Scotty's job, was to make him throw bounce passes. Because bounce passes are, is a most slower pass, and that allowed our defense to rotate, and that was that was one of our keys. Just make him throw a bounce pass, and if we could do that, we could figure out the rest. And uh, and Michael played great, and that's why we were able to win that series. Well, the other thing I remember, just from a fan's point of view, is and 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 you hit it was that you know Scotty was a. It was interesting in those later years with the with the Lakers, Magic sometimes they would get really tripped up by little guards. And there was this sense that, you know, both Byron and Magic were relatively tall. Like Kevin Johnson used to kill the Lakers. Stockton would kill the Lakers. But but, but they would able to exercise – the Lakers would flip it on when they would go on offense. They would be able to, to press the advantage. And in a way, 
James Worthy, he had he, he was a real. I mean, even though he was a quote small forward, I mean, he had a real tough post game, and he was a tough matchup in my mind for Scotty if they had to guard right. you know him. And then you know AC Green and Horace Grant would sort of sort of balance each other out by putting Scotty on Magic. It really pressed the advantage for you guys because he was more athletic. He could he could body up Magic on the post, and more importantly, had the energy just to like bird dog him the whole game. Or all you know, no fast breaks. That's funny you mentioned the bounce pass. That is, it's a weird thing in my mind. I don't even know if it's true. I just recall they would be these hard double teams on Magic, and he would throw bounce passes, and they got a bunch of easy buckets with like Eldon Campbell and and Vlade, but it slowed them down, and they couldn't get any momentum going, and Magic couldn't get his post game going, and and then the other thing was just you got the sense that you know the obvious that 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 Michael was just in killer mode and then and that was also the big that was the big Paxson series you know that was right. the first Paxson series where he was hitting those open jumpers and uh yeah i mean yeah thanks for bringing back a, a, a very <laughs> i thought it was a great way to start the show john i'm sorry um, i didn't mean to bring that back and i know it's a sore sore subject for you now john i know how much you appreciate some of the some of the on-court stuff so you know wanted to chop that up first but you know before we go into some of the specifics from from the last dance as far as moments and storytelling can you share what a you know the, the the hustle and the accomplishment that it was for you and the entire team to move up this timeline and get this out when you did and the way you did because originally of course it was set for the first week of june and then because of the events of the world you guys figured out how to make it happen in the third week starting in the third week of April? The, the credit really goes to, you know, a bunch of people first and foremost, you know, Jason, director for, you know, <laughs> having to marshal this, but, but on a practical level, uh, you know, there's two guys who were just enormously valuable to the project. I mean, they're two of the producers of the project, Jake Rogal and Matt Maxson, um, coordinating this. I mean, you know, as on a just very basic level, we had to get this massive amount of footage out of our post-production facility in New York. So we literally had five versions of the project and those went to each of the five editors or, you know, four editors and then, well, five editors and also Jason was editing. Um, and then, you know, it was all conducted that way. And so it would have to kind of go back. There was a, there was a sort of a technical media management issue. And then there was just like, okay, what version is he working on? And are we all working on the same version? And, and so they just chopped it up. Um, and then, you know, thank God the people who did our audio mix and our color correction, many of them had sort of, you know, almost professional setups at home. And so had that not been the case, I really don't know that we would have been able to do it because I can tell you, I, I told Eric this, as of March, you know, I call it the, the French infection <laughs> day, you know, when, when Rudy Gobert, I think it was March 11th, he has that. And Tom Hanks makes his announcement that same Wednesday. They shut the league down. Then there's that Friday the 13th. And basically that Monday was the decision made to, you know, move up the the, the the release date and it became kind of a math problem of like okay well what what can we do at that point I think you know more or less the first four were locked they, they, I I would say the first six were in some shape reasonably close to air but not done seven and eight were in you know a shape nine and ten were not you know and <clears throat> and I think what's so awesome about that is 
<clears throat> excuse me, in addition to just like the incredible energy that it took and just organization and just like, okay, we're going to do it. Um, I think seven, nine, and 10 are, I mean, in my opinion, the strongest episode. I mean, I love eight. I love all the episodes. I, I happen to think seven, nine, and 10 are maybe the best of, of them all. And, and that's just such a credit to the team. And then also on the archival side, a woman named Nina Kristich, who, um, who did the archival producing for, for the OJ series. Um, and she is the absolute best at what she does. And you, you'll appreciate this. She is, I'm going to get this wrong. I think she is she's the former Yugoslavia. I'm not actually entirely sure if she's Croatian or Serbian. That's embarrassing. But she, because she's from the former Yugoslavia, you know, she knows, she knows co-coach, Yugo Plastica split. Like, and, and as Eric knows, I'm a big international basketball fan. I've done a lot of stuff in, uh, around international hoops. So she could talk the talk, you know, about Partizan Belgrade and Red Star and Sabona Zagreb. I mean, these, you know, European basketball things. And so she's unbelievable. And so you have all these people and, you know, it, it was really challenging. But I do think, you know, in the end, in a way, this pandemic – for the purposes of the edit, kind of sharpened everyone's focus. And it's like, okay, no more dilly-dallying. We got to go, 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 go. And it also helped, you know, we had a lot of stakeholders and there were still a ton of notes that came through from, you know, ESPN, from Netflix, from the NBA, from the Jordan people, from us, from Jason, you know, it's a lot of chefs. And I think that, yes, there were still the same volume of notes or maybe slightly, you know, dialed down, but there was also an understanding of like, guys, we got to go. And sometimes the best thing is a deadline, you know, <laughs> and and it kind of cuts through all the BS and we just got to go. And so, um, you know, that they, the episodes were would still go through, you know, rough cut, fine cut, all that kind of stuff. And, and the, the degree to which they changed and they got even better was it was inspiring to see because I mean, I saw it, you know, I wasn't in New York, I was in L.A., but I would see as the cuts progressed. And um, and meanwhile, the whole time, like I'm working with the music guys and the licensing people and the NBA. And so and just trying to like, hey, we need this shot from this and that shot from why and, and just trying to, you know, pitch in however possible to make it happen. The the Cliff Levingston like role player that you were. <laughs> um, you know, w- one thing BJ and I were talking about um, before we started and you and I talked about it last week was the, the music and the scoring. And, you know, BJ is a, uh, is a music connoisseur. So uh, I, I want to, I want you guys to go back and forth a little bit on, on, on some of the music choices, but you know, BJ, what was the first track in the last dance when you were watching, where you just froze and like, um, couldn't believe like this dropped just then? Well, the Eric V and Rakim, when you guys hit that, you know, I ain't no joke. I jumped out. I was like, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a huge hip hop fan. I like, I love the music, the LL Cool J when it came with Cool D and all of the music. I thought the music that you guys picked was just absolutely fabulous. How did that come about? And I know Rudy is from Detroit, if I believe. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah Rudy he is. is from Detroit, right? I'm from yeah. Detroit. So I was like, uh, you know, I had a little pride there. I was like, you know, of course he's from Detroit. You know, it's all from about the, the music. You know, he's from the D. There you go. Yeah. So how did you guys choose it? I mean, I, I thought the music was fabulous. And uh, I was just uh, like, where do I get this soundtrack from? Well, it is, it's wild because, you know, I know 
you know, Jason has a really, you know, encyclopedic kind of knowledge of, uh, I mean, even though he's a, like a, you know, guy from, from Newton, Massachusetts, uh, but like, you know, white guy has a, has, a, has a, you know, great sort of ear for hip hop. Um, and, you know, it's hard because like, on the one hand, you want recognizable, but you don't want it to be the cliched song. But so you have, which one do you choose? And, you know, I was just looking over the list. So we have you basically take like, you know, milestone artists from this period basically from the late 80s to you know 98 we kind of have all of them in terms of like just really iconic whether it's eric and rakim you know biggie the beastie boys pearl jam cool um uh oh, tribe called quest i mean like yeah, yeah, yeah. there's all yeah. the i mean i'm a massive tribe fan i will tell you the eric and rakim that has been in there a long time that mm-hmm. was in there a, a long time the Biggie song has been in there, you know, from episode yes. one, you know, been around the world for two years. Um, the stereo MCs connected, the tribe. Um, th- there was, I would tell you that it was one of the more challenging, and I, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said. I mean, the, the music is such a, a um, subjective thing right. that, you know, what I like um, may not be what you know the Jordan people like or the NBA people like or whatever, but you know it came. It, it, it's just so awesome how it came together. And I'll tell you that the the biggest thing was, you know, you're not even talking about the the composed score. Like you know that that opening theme song has been there for a long time, but like all of the other moments, and it's um, Tom uh, Caffey. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. And and also how much it changed, you know, and so. It, you know, there were cuts that came through, you know, as recently as let's call it, you know, late night, you know, late uh, December of last year, where none of that stuff was in there. And yeah. so it, it was that to me, it's the combination of the licensed pop cues, the licensed pop songs. Those are great moments. And, and we, we frankly, we, we, we put in more of them. I mean, Jason put in more of them sort of as the season, as the series went along. Um, I think in part because it's like, hey, this is such a trove of it's such an iconic series. Like let's put in these great songs. But I think what's really cool is like, you know, let's call it like use the beastie boys as an example. Like it's not the, it maybe the most expected beastie boy song, but it's still a beastie boy song. Right. Um, and like I'm trying to remember which, uh, Oh, can I kick it? Right. So the, the tribe will be used. I mean, that's a very popular song, yeah, but yeah, it yeah, may not yeah. be the, it's not a war tour. You know, it's not the yeah, one yeah. that hit the charts. And, <laughs> So I, I mean, I, I, I loved it, and so oh, um, it, was, it, it, was, uh, it was. I could only I, imagine. I could only imagine the loopholes and things you guys had to do. But when you played, when you played Outcast, Rosa Parks, uh-huh. I, I, I f- fell out. And then you, you, <laughs> so you I can't believe you say that. A, a guy yeah. I know from Atlanta had the same reaction. Oh God, I, I, and, like, I like, I like, passed out. And then, and then you stepped into like. So I like the underground hip-hop, right? So when you play, like, KRS-One, Step Into a World, and mm-hmm. these, you, you, you know, and then you, you came back with, you know, and when you, you know, you did, like, you did Nas and Lauren Hill, I was like, if I rule the world, I was like, yeah. I was like, you, you just like, because that was all, that was like the music captured that moment, it captured that time from here, so uh, it took no, me back to... No, I mean, I think uh, that what you're hitting at is those of now you're a couple years, you're a few years older than than me, right? But, but you 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 came out of college in what 1990? 89. Yeah. Okay, so you're almost ten years older than me. I graduated college in '98. Jason actually right. graduated college in '98, and so there's sort of you know different levels of nostalgia. Like for me, 
I mean, like Tribe and 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 uh, the Beastie Boys. I mean, that is like my you know teenage you know from like the time I'm 12 years old to 18. You know, I listen to them all the time. And so right. then there's people. Who, if you're a little older, you associate it with the time you were like in your younger 20s. You know, and so and now all of us like I'm 43 and you're probably what 53 or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. so we, we have different stages in our lives, but now we can connect into the nostalgia of the music and the nostalgia of the sports, it's not unlike, honestly, our parents, like in the 70s or in the early 80s when they were making movies and TV shows about the 50s and 60s. It's like Happy Days was in the late 70s, about 20 years removed. And like Wonder Years, which came out when we were in the late 80s, was about the 60s. So it's now that time. It just it feels like a trip to think about it that way because to me, 1998 is not that long ago, but it is. <laughs> 22 years ago. So um, it's just, uh, you know, it's all part of the kind of the kismet and the, the magic of, of what what this has become is just that, like, it hit at the right time. And, and but at the bottom of it, it was just, you know, very, very well executed, which is something I'm, I'm you know, just very grateful to be a part of. Yeah. yeah and, and John, in the, in the spirit of that, and, you know, time plays such a unique role in the storytelling because 98 is the anchor. And of course there's all these other years of happenings and establishment of teams and characters to go back to. So, you know, so much there for the story um, with all this feedback, all this conversation, um, you know, what, what piece of feedback on the film ha has meant the most to you, whether it's basketball, storytelling, emotional music, What's something unique that's really connected with you uh, about The Last Dance? It's sort of what I just said about, like, my, my gratitude about being a part of this. And, you know, it's been a four-plus-year journey. I mean, for, for – and, I you know, I haven't mentioned Mike Tolan, you know, who is my my partner and my boss at Mandalay Sports Media. I mean, you know, he got Michael. <laughs> and that should never be overlooked, and it isn't, but it it, it is – you know, I was with Mike. We were in Toronto in the All-Star Game of 2016. You know, it was the coldest I've ever been as a human. <laughs> and I remember I, I was freezing. I didn't leave it was the so cold for two days. So, it was so cold. And I, we were in the lobby. I can't remember if it was the Four Seasons or the Ritz-Carlton, wherever the big wigs stay. And and he was going to meet with SD and Curtis. And I, we were sort of like game planning, you know, talking points or whatever. And then off he went. And then it was like, okay, we, we got to, it looks like it went well. Maybe we'll get a meeting with Michael. And then we spent, you know, four months putting together this, you know, pitch deck more or less. And, and what's gratifying is the vision that was put in the deck, obviously not the series, but the vision was use this, use this season as a, as a through line to tell all these other stories. And, you know, at the time we didn't, we hadn't seen the footage, but the idea was, Hey, we'll go into pods on Rodman and, and on, 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 you know, Phil Jackson and on the Pistons rivalry. So seeing that come to fruition is very gratifying, but I would tell you the thing that is the most is like, when have we ever had a project? When have you had a project where people are thanking you for making it? It's one thing to say, okay, Hey, great job. I really enjoyed it. It made me feel good. People are thanking us. And it's just like a whole different level of, connectivity about you know something you put out into the world and it's also because it's come out at the same time you know on netflix internationally so not only is it a lots of things are available internationally but i mean nothing has ever been available when there's nothing else on mm. uh, in the whole world so that's what's just totally surreal is that like i mean i just got an email from a guy who directed a film for 
us in our Olympic series on the 2004 uh, Argentinian team <clears throat> with Manu Ginobili. Great team, great filmmaker in Buenos Aires. And he just emailed me saying, you know, John, people are going crazy. You know, and it's just like, it's unbelievable. That's, that, that's awesome. Um, you know, a lot of different um, emotional touch points in this. And something that really got, to, got me was just the uh, episode nine, the um, it was a combination. It's a combination of Steve Kerr and, and the flu game. And, you know, BJ, how much of that Steve Kerr story did you know ahead of time in terms of the details of his his father and his family and the, the effect that had on him, obviously, before the world knew who Steve Kerr was? Yeah, I, I was very aware of the the entire story. So, um, you know, I've, I've been knowing Steve since uh, – 1980 something 85 so you, 86 yo, so, you, so you knew steve oh that's right you knew steve when yeah, he was in arizona, arizona right? yeah yeah so steve uh one of my best friends at the time is still um, uh, good friends is uh, sean elliott mm -hmm. so um so i've been knowing steve for quite some time and it's always amazing like you know these stories either i was there or one person removed so it's just interesting to as a former player to watch yourself and you're talking about something 20, 30 years later, cause you, you know, whoever thinks that they're going to, you know, for me anyway, it was like someone else's life is always more exciting than my own. <laughs> you know, I didn't look at it that way. Uh, as we were playing back then, you're just young trying to do what you do, but I've been knowing Steve for God, it's been over 30, 30 years. years. Yeah, it's over 30 years. years. So yeah, yeah, I was very aware of that and um you know it's uh you know steve is terrific we played together in chicago and played against each other for many years and uh, he's he's one of the, the the you know great guys in this league he's a class act and uh i know his family you know right out here he grew up right out here in uh, pacific palisades right right out here yep. in, in la so uh he's terrific and uh one of the one of the best guys one of the best guys you'll ever meet I'll okay. tell you, so that was a particularly meaningful day. Um, you know, one of the interviews that I was able to, to go to, we did it in New York. And Eric, I may have mentioned this to you. Um, you know, I've been obsessed with Steve Kerr. I, I grew up out in L.A. I knew about, um, you know, his father. <clears throat> and, you know, I have family in Israel. And, and I had I'd known about that. But um, the day we shot him, in New, we actually shot it in New York. It was a rainy day in New York. It was the that that morning was the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Um, so and and Mike Tolan and I had breakfast with Steve before he did the interview with Jason, and it was just you know it was a heavy day and you know Steve is obviously very politically motivated you know minded and you know aware of what's going on and, and it was a heavy atmosphere and it was a rainy day and you know we go up to the the suite to do the interview and it's just he's so damn good he's he's a great storyteller and he, with detail and 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 heart and humor. And then, you know, I would say maybe two thirds of the way through the interview, he, Jason asked the question about the fathers and I knew it was coming and you never know. Cause he's told the story before he had done the big story for the New York times on it. But I think the combination of that, that day and it's heaviness, the weather, um, and Jason's really kind of demeanor, um, and, and empathy in, in during the, the interview 
even though he's very, very straightforward, I just think it was done in a, in a way that Steve Kerr felt, you know, this was a safe environment to do it. And so his emotion was just real and there's an intensity there. And it was, I feel very fortunate to have been there for that. And I knew, you know, that was, you, you, we had gold. That was just like, that's going to be a great pod. And it came to the, the parallel stories of his father being murdered that way and, and Michael's father being taken that way, I thought was very powerful. Yeah, it, it, it really, it, it humanized them. You know, we're so into the, the basketball part of this and then we have to take a step back and remember they have their, their lives out of the spotlight and, and these situations, these tragedies to, to live with and, and, and move forward with. So, you know, th- that time period, that version of the NBA, the greatness of Michael, the Bulls, all the competition and the teams trying to uh, knock them off the, the top of the mountain. Um, what's the biggest thing that comes to mind that you learned about Michael and the Bulls? during that era from putting this all together? The biggest thing I learned, I mean, there were a lot of things. I, I didn't, I had forgotten, for example, like that Scotty was, you know, basically crippled in that last game against in 98. Like I, I had really forgotten that. Um, I had, uh, there was like, I didn't, I knew some of the backstory with Krauss and MJ because I had read the Jordan rules and how he called them. Didn't they, didn't they, they nicknamed him crumbs um, that, that Michael had, had this kind of derogatory nickname for Jerry Krauss. I didn't know this, the, I didn't recall the source of it being that, you know, back in 86, you know, and Michael wanted to come back. And in retrospect, like, can you blame Jerry Krauss? Like if you were a general manager now and your best player was, down and and you were like a maybe going to be an eighth seed like wouldn't you shut him down <laughs> you know i mean now now we wouldn't even think about it but um you know just the 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 dynamics between and among my, michael phil jerry Krause, jerry reinsdorf i mean you know i there's i have a certain feeling about you know jerry reinsdorf in a way you know, wanted it both ways, right? He wanted to be above the fray so he could go to Michael directly if things got too hot, but he also kind of wanted Jerry Krause to be his bad guy. Um, so, you know, some of these dynamics and, and also just, you know, how bizarre it was that they essentially killed this dynasty when they did. I mean, can you imagine like Mark Zuckerberg being like, okay, Sheryl Sandberg, you're out. My 500 top engineers, you're gone. And I'll just bring in the next guys because, you know, organizations become tech moguls. <laughs> you know, like, it's just crazy to choose to shut down like that. Um, and so that, that all was, was, you know, really interesting to me. Copy that. Good stuff, buddy. BJ, final thought for John before we let him go. Hey, just want to say congratulations. Job well done, my friend. And uh, it's fabulous. Can't wait to see the next project. And I just want to be in on the music. And I, I just want to be in on the music. I just want to be in on the music, you know? Music, music, music supervisor. It's all, about the, it's all about the music, John. That's what it's all about. You mean, I like it. Special Ed said, I got it made. Right now, <laughs> I'm, 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 de- I'm dependent on you. I'm dependent on you, John. So, you know, BJ, we can talk last dance amongst ourselves with people like John Weinbeck for, for uh, quite some time. You know, w- one thing that I really loved about not just watching it, but I really 
there were some moments where I felt like I was back in the 90s and I was reliving what some of the battles were like, whether it was the finals or the Eastern Conference playoffs to, to get there. And so many terrific players, so many formidable teams between obviously uh, getting through the bad boys and the matchups with the Knicks, which you were a part of, the, the Lakers, the Blazers, the Suns, and then the second three-peat the Orlando magic matchups in, 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 in between there, when Mike comes back, where did your mind go during some of those playoff reviews and moments and who really popped out at you to the point where you were like, wow, I haven't thought about them or that team in a while, but they were really good. Or that was a really tough series. Is there anything that really jumped out at you while you were reviewing the last dance? Um, you know, uh, Eric, I, you know, that was a long time ago. And, uh, you know, I, I really, to be honest with you, I really never think about it. Um, that was then, and I've kind of like moved on, you know. Um, I, I enjoyed every moment of it. Uh, and But I, I never, like, think about it or even talk about it. Um, you know, I, I just, when you when you see, you know, when I saw the Lakers, I just thought about, you know, the game after game five, it really, that was kind of the one moment I, I do recall. I was like, oh yeah, that was a special moment because there's nothing like your first. And um, none of us knew what to expect. None of us knew how we were going to feel. There was no preparation for that. It was just very spontaneous. And, you know, some guys, you know, crying, some guys were just as happy as can be. And you saw this, you know, emotion. And um, that was kind of really the, the one thing that I do recall because, um, you know, you share these moments with people and each and every one of those guys, you know, you're kind of connected, you know, for the rest of your life. And um, I've never been happier to be a part of something than that one moment, you know, cause you work your whole life and uh, not, it's very rarely do you get a chance to win the final game of the season. And I just remember when that horn went off in, you know, at, at the fabulous forum and we all just ran to the locker room and it was just, everyone was just overcome with this emotion because we had been on the other side, Eric. And, you know, the one thing, you know, watching all of that stuff was great and watching all of the celebrations and the champagne was fabulous. But the truth of it is, um, is I remember the other side and uh, that's what kept me grounded. That's what always kept me humble. That's where I really learned about, you know, who BJ Armstrong was. I learned it in defeat. And I, I, I remember, you know, all of the, 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 the moments that got me and prepared me for that moment. Um, and it was just, um, that's what I remember most. Um, the celebration, yeah, that, that's great and that's fun. But the reality is I remember the journey more than just those, you know, little key moments that they caught on the camera. Yeah. And, and one thing that I, I've loved discussing with you was um, in 1990, after the game seven loss to Detroit, the, the journey to the championship starting literally days later, you guys were on that mission. After wrapping it up in 91 and getting the first one in that memory you just described, 
do you do you recall like what the 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 hunger level became after okay we've won one now what's the hunger to go do it again and do it again was that was that clear um, was that talked about amongst you guys or was it just well, like everybody knew you know eric once you win um you know it's it's, it's funny to talk about it because you, you you know like when you're you're in it you kind of you know you 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 know like everyone is hungry right all of these guys you know every season i i, I always you know remark at the beginning of the season it's 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 like it's like one of those, it's one of those like running jokes with me. I love the first day press conferences because there's so much optimism in the air, right? <laughs> Every team is like, like the hope of media day. Everyone's like, oh man, we feel really good. We feel good about our chances. All the GMs are like optimistic. The head coaches are like, oh, I really like this team. And then uh, like a week later, we need this. We need that. It's, a, it, it's like a running joke with me. Um, you know, Eric, when you win, people say you're hungry. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, and maybe I just have a different vernacular for things that I, that, that how I use it or how I term it. Um, the one thing I did learn is once you lose, once you win your first championship, um, you learn never to be happy again. <laughs> you, you, you learn never to trust happiness. And it comes down to how comfortable are you being uncomfortable with yourself and how disruptive can you be to yourself that you never rest on what you did yesterday. So, you know, being hungry, that's great. You know, I, I think that's, it's kind of like the first step, but everybody's hungry. Everyone in the NBA has talent. All of these guys are great. At some point, everyone in that league, that's why you're in that league you were a great player and you are a great player. That's why you're there. But what is the difference between the good player and the great player or the average player and the player who's just happy to be in the NBA? What's, what's the driving for what drove Michael Jordan to that degree? What was our driving force as a team? And our driving force is that we were all comfortable being uncomfortable. We all were uncomfortable. And to this day, Eric, when I get happy, I get a little nervous. And I don't know <laughs> if that's right. I don't know if that's wrong, but that's just how I'm wired. I'm not celebrating over winning because when I start to do something, I expect to do that. So I get it. You know, I know it's a little different, um, but I, I'm not comfortable talking about what I achieved. I, I, we set out, I set out, that's what I set out to do. Now, I don't always win. I don't always, you know, achieve the goals, but I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable setting those goals and going for it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable, Eric, with saying the following, um, no matter what's going to happen, I'm always going to get up. No matter how many times I fall down, I'm going to get up. So that to me is way more important than just saying I want to win a championship and all those things. Well, everyone wants to win a championship. I don't want to talk about it because I once you experience it, you respect it. You respect the work. You respect the things that has to happen. You know, you need a little luck along the way, 
You need people to contribute that you didn't even anticipate was going to contribute. You know, you need to be perfect, you know, you know, you know, and, and games and game six against the Phoenix Suns, for instance, everyone's talking about, you know, the shot by John Paxson, but no one recalled that Trent Tucker won four for four. Mm. And I remember that we need, and we needed every single one of those shots to even be in position to make that shot. So great, great call out. So, you know, those are the things that I remember because that's why you're a team. And yes, Michael was Michael and Michael deserves all of the credit. He deserves it all, all everything that he's getting and Scotty Pippen deserves everything he's getting and all of those guys. But what I remember most is that, you know, all of those guys committed to a lifestyle that allowed us the opportunity to do that. They didn't, we didn't come into gym and say we got to work hard. We didn't come into gym. Yeah. Everyone works hard. You know, that's, that, that doesn't impress me. What impresses me is when you commit, you make a, you make a commitment with your life. And the thing that was most telling about this whole docuseries is that here we are 30 years later and Michael Jordan in one of those series, I don't know if it was seven or what have you, one of the episodes, he asked the camera to stop. Yep. 30 years later. Break. Break. Okay. So when you find something aired that you're that passionate about, this is why I never talk about the game. I, you know, people say, well, you know, why don't you talk about it? Why don't you wear your championships rings? Because it's a little different when you do it because you lived it. You know, there's no, you know, the, I, 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 you when you love something to that degree, Eric, there's nothing else to be said about it other than I appreciate it. And I say that with great humility. And when you find something that you love like that, hey, I, I know talk to my kids about it. And that was the probably the most gratifying thing about this whole series is being able to watch it with my kids because my kids never saw me play. And, my, and I never talk about it with my kids. I never wear my championship rings. There's nothing in my home, you know, with it. It's just, it, it was great. But that level of commitment, I don't know if it's the right way to think about the world or the wrong way, but we found 11, 12 guys who were connected, <laughs> okay? And those guys, when I look at those guys to this moment, there's nothing else for us to say. We just all laugh. And, and I always say, my wife always asks me every single time. She goes, why do all of you guys laugh when you see each other? Hmm. Because everybody knows what they committed themselves to do. So um, those were great times. It was great to go down memory lane. Um, and I thought it was uh, well done. I thought, you know, you know, John and Jason Ayer and all of the guys, I thought they did an amazing job. And, and you, Eric, you know, you've, you've, you're in that business and you know the difficulty of putting a project like this together. I can't imagine how many moving parts they had to pull this together, especially in this pandemic, you know? So this was uh, very complicated. And um, I said bravo to the work and to all the people behind the scenes because this was a massive project and uh, that was amazing. Couldn't think of a better way to close the show. Thank you, my friend. Great Thank stuff. you. Great stuff. I'm hoping to be out your way um, soon, as soon as we get the next uh, 
the next break in this pandemic. So hopefully I'll be able to see you from a, a social distance uh, on the West Coast in the near future. But uh, for sure, great, great to get your thoughts on this and um, happy we had this convo today. So for uh, our one and only producer, Mike Lieber, Bruce Bernstein, editor Benjamin Wolfen, the entire Pure Hoops media team and family. Be sure to check out um, the Mike Wise Show, dropping each and every Monday. Fanta and Adams coming to you with Full Court Press each and every Tuesday. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin on Wednesdays. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt on Thursdays. And, of course, the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong. And yours truly, Eric Newman, coming at you. Fridays, we are hopefully going to be discussing some sort of NBA return soon. BJ will get into that and some more fun historical perspective on next week's show. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Stay safe, stay classy, and most importantly, stay pure. Thanks. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm -mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.